Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live uh, has been uh, collecting records as well as CDs and music, and she's been programming music for various sources, including uh, MTV, and has worked with various bands and helping develop them, bands including The Shins. She's uh, written a book called Unleashing Your Inner Music Nerd, One Album at a Time. It's called Record Collecting for Girls. Please welcome Courtney Smith. Courtney E. Smith for West Coast Live. How do you do? Nice to see you. Welcome to, uh, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is a live show. We don't, we don't do records on this show. Uh, well, I'll behave myself yeah, as well. Yeah. Oh, okay, thank you, thank you very much. So, uh, you're, uh, you have a thousand records in your collection? I do, I decided to cap it at a thousand uh, because I lived in New York City for nearly a decade, so space was at a premium. And then I moved to LA, so shipping everything across the country was a bit of an endeavor. Then I moved back to Texas and shipping it there. Also super fun, so I've decided to embrace the Star Trek-like future and really go digital as much as possible. So are these records residing in a museum somewhere at this point? Yes, the museum is called the bottom of my closet floor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> honestly, I keep most of them there. They're all alphabetized nicely, but I do it on the computer mostly. So what's your oldest album? Oh my gosh, that I've had longest or that was put out? That was put out longest. I want to sort of, where, where does your music aficionado-dom start? Well, I've been delving into jazz for the past few years, so I go back to <laughs> I go back to the Thelonious Monk, the Miles Davis. Uh, I really like female jazz singers a lot, though. I'm a big fan of Shirley Horn, and uh, Julie London is one of my favorites. So, but you weren't always there in that jazz world. Absolutely not. No, I definitely started out more in the Bananarama world. So, Bananarama being. One of my favorite groups when I was seven. My mother informed me I had very bad taste in music at the time. Did she have good taste in music in retrospect? Well, it's her fault that I thought Linda Ronstadt was the original singer of a Buddy Holly song for several years. <laughs> so questionable, very questionable. The, uh, the idea of being a music journalist, one of the points you make is that there aren't many women in, in, in the field. It's a, I mean, I think there's, uh, what was her name? Was it uh, Anne Bow? Powers? Anne Powers, Anne Powers of the Village Voice. Um, and, and others, but uh, largely sort of male-driven. Do you see yourself as kind of a female Nick Hornby or him as a male Courtney E. Smith? I like to see us both as originals, <laughs> I hope. Oh, fair enough, okay. <laughs> no, um, honestly, I've spent more of my career in music programming and marketing than anything, so I think I have a very different voice. It's probably a lot less critical and a bit more spirited, a bit more opinionated. So when you, when you get a group, uh, I mean, there are some rock and roll groups' names that you can't say on the radio. There are some that you can. Um, the Shins, for instance. They've always been called The Shins? No, they were flake music before that when they were in Arizona. And uh, The Shins actually became James Mercer, the lead singer's side project. And he ended up asking all the guys that were in flake music with him to join the band. So it's essentially the same, just him taking a bit more creative control. What is the worst band name that you've ever come across? Well, okay, I really love all the guys in Death Cab for Cutie, but they agree with me that they have the worst band name ever. Death Cab for Cutie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, but that's kind of catchy, though. 
It's kind of catchy. It's a reference to uh, that Ruddles film. There's a, yeah, that's where it comes from. But it's not very, it's Googleable, which is good, which is something a lot of bands have to think about these days, considering they came out in the mid-90s. That wasn't really an issue. But it's a little, mm, not the best. Not the you best. have a category of songs. Is it called Guilty Pleasures? Yes. <laughs> so what's a guilty pleasure in the music world for you? Okay, some people don't believe in guilty pleasures. I believe in them. I think you should accentuate what is eccentric about your taste in music. Uh, but a guilty pleasure is something perhaps you don't tell people that you like. You don't want them to know that you listen to it. It's Like Queen. No, no, everyone enjoys Queen now. They're, that's the thing, guilty pleasures sort of evolve. So there was a time, I talk about this in my book, when Hall & Oates would have been a guilty pleasure. And essentially, Michael Jackson made them just obsolete. Uh, but now they've become cool again, and it's because of people taking back that history and taking back the music. Take back Hall & Oates? Yes, take ownership over Hall & Oates and admit that those are some pretty good pop songs, even though it, it, in context, at the time, the early 80s, not, not so cool. You know, I, I was, there's something about when you hear music on the radio that you get confused. I got confused. For instance, I heard Hall and & Oates, and I didn't know it was two people's names, Hall and Oates. I thought it was a, you know, like a trucking company or something. <laughs> Hall and Oates. Hall and Oates. I, I was confused for a long time. <laughs> Hall and Oates were my first celebrity sighting ever in life when we yeah. took a little trip to New York when I was about 11 or 12 years old, and I saw Hall coming down Fifth Avenue towards us, and I'm, I'm like, I'm, I wouldn't, have, I would say I was an avid MTV watcher. It might have been my number one activity in life, really, and I was like, I think that's. Hall. And then you see Oates coming with the mustache, and it's just like, yes, that's them. Oh, my God. And then there's an ampersand following them. Yes. Just say, wait, wait, wait for me. <laughs> and if they'd been a law firm, it would have been a comma, maybe. Hall, Oates, and, you know, Smith. I don't know. So when, when you, uh, what is it, uh, what is the psychology of, um, you, you describe yourself as being a completist, Yes, so I did an interview with a friend of mine recently uh, for a website called The Hairpin. She told me, according to my... As in, as in hair or as in rabbit? Hairpin, okay. as in hair, yes. And she told me that according to my rules for making your top five artists list, she had no artists in her top five because she didn't own all the records by any band. And I find that strange. When I really love a band, I want to own everything that they do. I think it's important. Uh, for them, especially. Yes, yeah. for their revenue. I want them yeah. to keep making records, so I buy them. Right. Well, that's very supportive. So I was interested in the idea of mixtapes, too. I mean, people have often, over time, put together collections of music or played music for their loved one or as a form of seduction. And you've got some guide points uh, you know, for various sort of circumstances. But I was interested, and I don't know if this is a generational thing, but I didn't see much reference to like Joni Mitchell and Ricky Lee Jones in here. <laughs> Well, it's hard to woo men with Joni Mitchell and Ricky Lee Jones in my generation. <laughs> I think they might find that a little strange. Well, but you might, I mean, but one of the things that you do is you, you use the music as kind of a test of how they are as a human being. It's true, but I want to express things about myself, and I don't know that Joni Mitchell's voice is my voice. So who would be your voice? Oh, gosh, that's a really hard question. It depends on the person. Like, it, it depends on what I want to express to them, who they are, what our circumstances are, what songs we've had together, what shared experiences we've had. It's really different individually. Well, one of the warning signs you say is that you, know, you don't want to be involved with somebody whose uh, who's band, favorite band is the Smiths. Now, can you first 
there are a couple of people who are laughing. Can you describe for the rest of us about the Smiths? The Smiths are a British band from the 80s. They were very underground at the time, and they've become cult heroes since then. You might know their song, How Soon Is Now. It's really their biggest hit, their only thing that resembles a hit. They're very, very sad. They, there's a lyric that encapsulates them perfectly that says, I wear black on the outside to show how I feel on the inside. I don't want to date that. No. <laughs> no. But here, here's, a, here's a songwriter, as, as often uh, you know, songwriters do, they express an inner vulnerability and, and somebody's trying to communicate their own state of heart and maybe they want you to not have them painted black, you want them to be some other color. Right, and that's where the too much, what people who like the Smiths too much comes into play. There's, I appreciate fandom, I have it myself for several bands, but when you identify too closely with those lyrics, that sort of sentimentality, I, it just doesn't, it's not right for me. There is a, there's a pot for every lid, so there is someone who'll be perfect for you, but we're just gonna be friends. I see, I see, so it's, a, it's really a litmus test for you. Yes. There's a radio station uh, here I, I listen to, and you can catch on the internet too, KALX out of uh, Berkeley, which, which does, has a phenomenal set of music DJs. And I'm always hearing new things as well as, as old things. And there are, uh, for instance, Matoki. I mean, there are, there are uh, female DJs on there who are introducing music um, uh, in, in a way that says, I mean, there's no difference between men and women in, in terms of, of taste, uh, eclecticism, adventurism. I would say uh, my take on that is look at the, the history of music, who's in the canon, who are the considered the most important artists of all time, and it's still largely male, even currently, just looking at who's going into the canon right now. It's largely male voices. Male voices are considered universal. Their point of view is something everyone can identify with, and there's still an idea out there that the female point of view is either marginal or that men just won't identify with it. It's not just in music, it's in movies, it's in TV shows, it's how we market things to people, that men won't watch what women, or listen to what women do. So I'm all for putting women in the forefront and making them listen. <laughs> There was one, one person applauding her. Um, so you sound uh, bitter, angry? Deeply, deeply. So what, what song would go with that? <laughs> oh, what song would go with that? I mean, if you're just going to do it, just go Alanis Morissette. You ought to know and be real angry. <laughs> no, I've discovered wonderful things uh, you know, through other people's tastes in the radio. I was listening to an incredible version of um, Painted Black, and it turned out to be by a group called The Avengers, you know, uh, and a fantastic band. And Penelope Houston, Bay Area star, uh, was in it. And I had only known Penelope Houston through some of her mellower work. I had known she'd been in this group called The Avengers. And it all ties together in these extraordinary ways. And uh, I don't know, I, uh, she's, the event, uh, she's up there with the, you know, the panoply of, you know, of great uh, female rock and rollers. So I just put that out there. She's on my top five list, I think. I'll put that on my Spotify playlist then. Oh. So how has the internet then changed? I mean, there's Spotify and Pandora and iTunes and, you know, what the heck's going on? People saying radio is dead now? Or? 
Technology has changed so much that the way I listen to music since I finished editing this book has changed. Like um, RDO and Spotify have come into my life and I feel even less inclined to buy music. I, I can try it out so easily there. It's like having a public library of music at my disposal. And I have to remind myself, okay, you really liked that, go buy it. You need to support this artist. I think that it's an idea finally coming into its own. When I was at MTV, we worked with Rhapsody on a partnership, and it's this subscription music service where you have access to practically everything. The only thing not really available for streaming is the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. Um, and it took, it didn't catch on. It hasn't really caught on, but now it really seems to be, I know tons of my friends do it, and the great thing about things like Spotify is it's got Facebook integration, so now I can really spy on what my friends are listening to and what they want me to hear and find out all their dirty secrets about music. So can you stalk somebody because you like their music tastes and think, I want to be with that person? Yes, Spotify stalking is the new Facebook stalking. You heard it here first. Spotify stalking. <laughs> yes. So who needs seeing Hall and Oates in the streets of New York, right? Well, there's still that thrill of, that's the beauty of the live performance. You get to have that interaction, that chemistry with an artist that you wouldn't otherwise not get. So many artists have found nowadays, in part because of uh, uh, sort of the economics of the music business, that they make a lot more, uh, have a lot more revenue performing in, in, uh, in venues and selling their material on the, on the site. And, and sort of being independent of major record labels nowadays. Yeah, I just read an interview in The Village Voice with a local um, New York artist who was talking about the idea of uh, sponsorships and um, the old idea, like the old artistic idea of having, uh, what is that called whenever uh, someone pays for your, like how the church used to pay for artists to... Uh, patronage. Patronage, yes, exactly, thank you. Which uh, is unrelated to payola. Well, as long as, you know, no major corporations are involved, I suppose that's true. <laughs> um, but the idea that patronage could make a comeback and that that's a more lucrative and realistic way for artists to create music than waiting for a record label to fund them. And if you look at just the money, uh, the amount that the music industry is worth now in the last two years has taken a huge nosedive. And Warner Brothers just laid off a ton of people and consolidated the Warner and Reprise labels. So I don't think it's necessarily the smartest road to take to just go to a label and hope they're going to market you properly and hope you'll become famous from that. So if you were a musician starting out with a band or promoting a, a band that you like, I mean, how would you, what would your route be nowadays? Uh, well, actually, I've done that. Um, I was doing a bit of freelance video promotion, and you do still want to go to the major places, but you don't have to do it with a major label. But you want to get to major portals on the internet as much as you can. You want to create content that people can share. I think you want to give away things to get them interested and then do that bait and switch, get them to actually buy something to give you money for something. I don't think that's bait and switch. That's, that's called the premium, freemium model, right? Yes, that's the top spin model, I believe. Bait, bait and switch is say, I'm going to give you uh, the Beatles' White Album, and instead you uh, give them uh, all, I don't, the all the notes, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, though, uh, now it's very much about content creation and sharing content and using social media to get yourself out and connect with people in a really close and digital way. Do you, do you uh, wish that you could have done your book as a recording? 
No, but I wish I could have done an enhanced ebook that had a lot of multimedia and audio and stuff in it. I hope that that might be possible in the future. Well, I've certainly found those services like t iTunes uh, great resources when you're reading a book and listening. I mean, I, I, uh, I part read and part listened to that uh, Keith Richards uh, autobiography, and he was making reference. That book could have been so much more interesting with music excerpts in it. You know, and when he's talking about how to play the guitar and chord changes, I mean, there were fascinating things that I would love to have heard him demonstrate. I agree completely. I found myself uh, skipping through the beginning and then skipping the ending and just wanting to get to the juicy parts in the middle because it was really hard to connect with some of the more esoteric musical stuff. But if you could have seen video of it or heard what he was talking about, it would have been a lot more engaging. So you went for the drug use stories. Yeah, pretty much. The, the I skipped those. I did the other th I, I'd read the other ends. I wanted to know the smutty truth. <laughs> <laughs> So how much of, of uh, I mean, would you consider yourself a, a, a groupie to some bands? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> would, do you, do you ever, did you, would you ever get an all-access backstage pass from time to time? Yes, but I was more like the gatekeeper to a major music channel, so they treated me with a bit of respect. Yeah. So what, what, is it, what was the, uh, you were a VJ, right, a video? Of, no, no, I'm a music programmer. Music programmer. Yes. Yeah. So when you say music programmer at MTV, the immediate thought is, wow, that must be the easiest job in the world. They don't play music there. But <laughs> MTV has about 20 different uh, screens where you can watch things. And I worked uh, a lot on a channel called MTVU, which was available on, is still available on college campuses, 24-hour music channel. And it was so much fun. They let me go crazy and just put on things because I liked it, because I would argue long enough with someone for them to agree. So, but a group had to have a video. It wasn't enough just to have a record. It was enough to get my attention to have a record. Uh, but yeah, to get on a video channel, you have to have a video, yes. You wouldn't just put up a slide. Not usually, no, no. You can do that on YouTube, though. YouTube is good for that. So has MTV been sort of eclipsed by YouTube, do you think? I think so. I think MTV didn't have a great digital strategy in the late 90s and early 2000s, and they left that space open. YouTube, though, as a startup, I mean, it's owned by Google now, but when it started, it was just some people, and they didn't have the same sort of rights restrictions that an MTV would face with licensing. And, you know, the old model, MTV encodes things from beta tapes that they put on air to put on the internet, which is a bit outdated. Uh, it's a lot easier if you can just upload it yourself to YouTube, and people can just search for it and find it. So what's next for you? Well, next, I actually want to start researching a book about country music for people who don't like country music. <laughs> do, you, do you think that's a large bridge to cross? I think that there's a lot of eccentricity and uh, interesting lifestyle things to talk about there that uh, I feel like as red states and blue states grow more divided and people are e it's easier to move to places where there are people that are like-minded, you just don't have that sort of interaction that you used to have in America. So there's, I think it could be an interesting read if I do it well. And, and is country music something that is uh, also like jazz, sort of extending your, your own sort of musical curiosities then? Well, I find I grew up in Texas, actually, and I find that uh, just by, I guess, osmosis, I know every word to every country song from about 1982 to 1996 because it was around. Um, 
So it's kind of getting up to speed with that 96 to present is my main thing. And I've been doing a lot of reading and research back to the 50s and 60s and 30s and 40s, getting a feel for what it was really like, what people really thought of country at the time. Uh, are you feeling ancient when you go back that far? I mean, you're, you're looking into ancient history? No, not at all. <laughs> Mike, do you have any words of wisdom uh, for Courtney E. Smith? <laughs> I don't have any words of wisdom. I just have questions. You know, what, what is going to happen now? Uh, the, the, the whole dynamic is so different. Um, I, I worry about some things. I worry about YouTube in terms of that everything now is almost amateur because everybody can do everything themselves. There's no like filtering like there used to be the old A&R people at record companies to say, oh look, you know, you can't sing in tune, you don't have any chance. Uh, whereas now, in fact, we even have technology to fix that, so it doesn't matter if you can't sing in tune. You can fix. <laughs> so I worry about the lack of professional standards, I guess. I think that's a really valid worry. Um, oh, thank God. Yeah. No. <laughs> Last he has plenty of invalid worries, let me tell you. Well, last year, if you think about it, 75,000 records were released, and the year before that, it was 96,000. There's no way people can consume all of that music, no. and there's no way that all of it's good. It used to be a lot more filtered, and that was the function of the major label system to a certain degree. Now it's all the Wild West, and I mean, it's a little bit scary if that's not so what you're in, used in to, but it's way, kind of fun. Won't, there won't be another Beatles because the, the thing isn't, even the, if the talent is there, the thing isn't there to gather us all together. We don't all listen to the same place. You know, when the I Beatles know came out, that. even my mother listened to them, and I did. Right, you know. well, think about an artist like a Lady Gaga. I mean, that is a universal, it happened really quickly and became a universal thing, whether you like it or yes, don't, just like the Beatles yeah, yeah. at the time. Right. Everybody yeah. knows who that is and has to be culturally aware of it. Uh, okay. Sorry, yeah, la Lady who? Lady Gaga. Who? Oh. <laughs> funny jokes, funny jokes. <laughs> Didn't she get carried in somewhere, like coming out of an egg somewhere? I don't know much about her music. No, actually, my kids do. But. Yes, that was the Grammys. That was her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Kesha, people. And what, what's, the, what's the other person they listen to? The reason that you're having a hard time is because pop radio right now, it's basically three producers. It's Dr. Luke, David Guetta, and um, there's one other guy, and Red One. And everything sounds like Euro dance at the moment, and that's just where pop music is. I'm hoping... And they play the same song. Like They must have a music rotation of the same song seven or eight times an hour. Yes, they do, and it's going to get even tighter. That's one of the effects of people meter on radio. What is people meter? People meter is, in the last few years, what all of the major radio companies have adopted to test songs, and it used to be a notebook that they wrote down, their, the designated people. Now it's uh, digitized. It goes around with you wherever you are, so they can genuinely see what you are actually listening to for how long, just based on a certain sampling of people. And it's led playlist to get tighter and tighter and tighter because people like familiarity and they like things to sound the same. Wow. Lovely, lovely, lovely. <laughs> I guess that's one of my other worries that, uh, speaking of Lady Gaga, not to flog a dead horse, but... <laughs> Isn't it, isn't it more about show business than music? Let me just say one word to you, and that word is Madonna. 
Hasn't More it been about that for quite some time? Yeah, right. Yeah. No, no. And uh, before that, Michael, I, you know, I, interesting here, you've got a, a, a make-out music list here uh, with <laughs> Romeo and Juliet uh, as, the, as the theme. And <laughs> some of these songs I've not heard of, I have to say, but... Not to this music list, I will say. Uh, I don't know that uh, Meet Me on the Equinox with Death Cab for Cutie, you know, for instance, is... Well, let me put this playlist into a bit of context for you. So the way I wrote this essay is I looked at three of the more recent adaptations of the Romeo and Juliet story in form of movie. Valley Girl, Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, and Twilight New Moon. I know, Twilight, but it's actually a very good soundtrack. And uh, all of them use the basic Romeo and Juliet structure, and all of them have very overt uh, references to it that's in the movie. It's, they're very much admit that's where it comes from. So I decided to look at that sort of the passionate, desolate romance of Romeo and Juliet and look at the songs that they chose to soundtrack those movies to and see if they couldn't make a good makeout playlist. Uh, did, the, did the movies all end in the same way as Romeo and Juliet? Only the Romeo and Juliet direct adaptation. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. that's, it's pretty, it, sad. it's pretty sad. It's pretty sad, but I mean, what's more romantic than killing yourself for love? <laughs> well, there might be other things I could, that would come to mind, I have to say. But, um, but I mean, in that one, I mean, it, it, it didn't make out so well. It didn't make out so well for Romeo and Juliet at the end. But anyway, I was just curious about that. But anyway. That, that's true. I agree. They didn't end happily, no. Uh, so, uh, record collecting for girls, great title. Uh, I'd say ignore anybody who gives you a bad time for that title. I think it's a great title. Oh, thank you. I knew the title of the book before I even started writing it, so I was pretty dead set on that. Well, uh, keep collecting records. Um, I found some great stores where you can get them for two or three bucks. I bought a record player the other day, first time in years, and put on records. I just love the physical act of playing records again. I, the first record I ever saved up my allowance to buy was when I was eight years old, and it was Julian Lennon's Villette. And I had my Fisher-Price record player, and it would be me and Julian Lennon in my bedroom for hours. It was great, a great tactile feeling. Oh, well, Courtney E. Smith, thank you very much for being on West Coast Live. Thank you so much. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.